five, six, two. Welcome to Computer Game Evolution, a podcast about the evolution of computer games. Episode two point eleven: The Agony of Choice. On the sixteenth of July, nineteen forty-five, the United States detonated the world's first nuclear bomb. In America, it was the Trinity test. The people living near the test site were simply told later an ammunition and pyrotechnics dump had exploded. But forty miles away from the bomb, twelve girls in their early teens were on a camping trip. They felt a powerful blast of hot air knocking them out of beds in the morning, ran outside, and then it started snowing. In July, wow! They played with the snow, rubbing radioactive ash into their faces. Only one of them survived to celebrate her thirtieth birthday. Some cattle that were caught in a fallout developed burns and had to be bought from puzzled and angry farmers. The fallout settled in the soil, the crops. It was in the water and the milk. Babies started dying at an unprecedented rate. All complaints about the situation were brushed off or officially ignored and unofficially filed into radiation exposure statistics. And these early sacrifices on the nuclear altar were soon followed by many more. The first person not involved in the test to know for sure that America had nuked itself was a physicist from Kodak, Julian Webb. In August '45, the company got customer complaints that the brand new X-ray film they had bought came already exposed, fogged. The issue was familiar to Kodak. Years earlier, similar fogging patterns had occurred when the film stayed in the presence of radium, the thing people used for glow-in-the-dark instruments. But the company had revised its entire production chain to make sure no radium was anywhere near its film. Now what? Webb got put on the case to locate the source of the radiation and found it in the packaging materials made at two mills, four hundred and fifty miles apart, on around the same date in July. Testing the contaminated straw board for radium, Webb discovered that whatever had irradiated it was definitely not radium. And then, you know, it's August forty-five. The news is all about the atomic bombings of Japan. Right, they must have tested those bombs. Since at the time the test was a secret, Webb published his findings only in forty-nine. In fifty-one, the U.S. government ran another nuclear test, and fogged up Kodak's film again. It was bad for business, so Kodak threatened to sue. That's how the government established the practice of warning Kodak in advance and in secret where fallout and contamination could be expected. That was very optimistic, as the fallout from the fifties and sixties nuclear tests spread all over the globe. As for the ordinary people for whose sake those tests were being carried out, supposedly, they got no warning. And when the nuclear arms race between the USA and the USSR escalated and went into space, it became clear to both sides that the missiles were impossible to defend against completely, and the only possible outcome of putting them to use would be a mutual assured destruction. The nuclear arsenals defending the two superpowers turned out to be incapable of defending the actual population of those superpowers. 
Good only for making the other guy regret starting it, in case he did. The exact level of tension between the East and the West went up and down during the Cold War, but the pressure was there constantly, eating away at people's confidence in the future. Student protests, counterculture, easter eggs, whatever, the Cold War still held the world in its embrace, a presence at the back of people's minds as they played video games and made video games. Around 1979, Atari's vice president of sales, Gene Lipkin, a former Allied Leisure employee, by the way, was reading a magazine. And in that magazine, he must have read a piece about the latest on missile defense, namely that the radars of the North American Air Defense Command could detect incoming Soviet missiles in case of a nuclear war, but couldn't actually intercept them all, and new defense systems were being suggested. Revamping missile defense would become a big topic in the early 80s, and one of the hobby horses of President Ronald Reagan, alongside hating the poor and going senile. Anyway, Gene Lipkin read the article, and a picture caught his eye. A shot of a radar screen. I don't know what it looked like exactly, I'm just going by the short version of the story compiled by Alex Rubens. His long version is 250 pages, and nobody's got the time for that. But I did look up the beginnings of the strategic defense initiative, Star Wars, and it turned out that shooting missiles down did become a major topic in 79. Lipkin liked the picture, thought that there was a game idea in it, called a guy lower on the chain of command, Steve Calfee, and handed him the magazine clipping. Steve proceeded to summon the people who would actually do the work, Dave Toyra and Rich Adam. They were told... Here's the idea. You've got these missile trails coming in from the top, and you've got these bases at the bottom. The trails are missiles coming in, and you shoot missiles down from your bases to intercept them. You try to save your bases. End quote. Since it was that time in Atari's life when it had just discovered vector graphics and lunar lander and asteroids, the new game would be Vector 2. Dave Toyer was put in charge of developing this missile defense game under the working title Armageddon. But the management would change the name, and on release the game would become famous as Missile Command. Toyer was in particular excited about the idea of making a purely defensive game, with no retaliation, no killing, and no attacking unarmed people, hello atomic bomber and death race. Was Missile Command the first video game about pure defense? No. Atari got beaten by Gremlin Industries and its 1978 cabinet Fortress, designed by Lane Hauk. In Fortress, you had a pirate ship on the left side of the screen and a castle on the right side of the screen, and the pirate was firing cannonballs at the castle, trying to destroy it. The player could shoot down the cannonballs using their own three cannons, each in a fixed position and firing at a fixed angle. Hauk developed Fortress after watching blockade players had taught him that different people find their own ways to enjoy games, so the cabinet supported an alternative approach to playing it. Each cannon was controlled by a single big button. The official way to enjoy Fortress was for a player to press those buttons managing all three cannons, but if, say, three kids wanted to put in only one quarter and play together, taking charge of one cannon each, they'd find the control layout very convenient for that. 
So Fortress was secretly also Team Fortress, decades before Team Fortress became a thing. But Atari's Armageddon was shaping up to be far more topical than Fortress, possibly even inching towards simulation. It seems that the object of the game changed right there at that initial meeting. The players wouldn't be just defending some bases, but cities. In fact, early on there were supposed to be six cities in California where Atari had its offices, and the name of each city would be displayed on the screen. By themselves, the six cities were defenseless. They needed to be protected using three missile batteries, and as another early nod to realism, the launchers had railroads coming to them, supplying them with ammunition, and you had to protect the railroads too, otherwise no missiles. It may seem like a silly extra detail, but ordinary Americans at the time were pretty up-to-date on what a surface-to-air missile site looked like. There had been plenty of those in North Vietnam. Dave Toyra jumped into the project with the obsession of a true workaholic and soon stopped caring about work schedule or even the day and night cycle. He kept working until he physically couldn't, going for days without sleep, no manager made him stop apparently, and soon, when Dave did go to sleep, he started having vivid nightmares of missiles raining down from the sky and destroying everything. Then he would wake up in his home, still intact, then they would go to a window that offered a great view of a friendly neighborhood US Air Force base, a big juicy target, and he started crunching numbers in his mind, calculating how long it would take for the shockwave to reach his house if the base got nuked. You know, happy thoughts. As Dave Toyra was working on Missile Command, Missile Command was working on him. Thinking happy thoughts helped Dave realize what the key elements of Armageddon were, what really mattered and had to be enhanced, and what was superficial and distracting. They ditched the railroads, making the launchers work with a limited supply of missiles replenished between levels. They removed the city names so that it was no longer a silly game about the USSR bombing Atari. Now the game could be taking place anywhere, no matter where you lived, one of the six cities could be yours. For the controls, the game, just like Fortress, had three buttons to fire the three launchers. But this time, their fire had to be aimed by a targeting cursor controlled by a trackball. Why trackball and not a joystick? Well, trackballs were used by real radar operators and air traffic controllers. Also, more importantly, Toyra's only previous project at Atari had been a four-player variant of that football cabinet where Atari used a trackball for the first time. Applying a somewhat physically demanding ball controller to games with balls was a stroke of genius, namely Tomohiro Nishikado, who did it in 73. Missile Command was not a ball game, but, you know, much like vector graphics, trackball was kinda new, kinda fit, available, and the developers were familiar with it. With all the changes and adjustments, the finished Missile Command ended up staying close to its original magazine inspiration. Missile trails came from above, and now they included a few with multiple independent re-entry vehicles. That is, they split into several warheads. Down below, there were the six cities and three counter-missile batteries. Each battery had limited ammunition, you could clearly see right there on the screen, and if you got distracted, you'd hear a low ammo audio warning too. 
Another quirk was that your counter-missiles did not arrive at the targeting cursor immediately, so you had to lead your shots and try to catch as many enemy projectiles as you could in counter-missile explosions. The whole thing had a realistic feel to it. This was not the sci-fi battle of space invaders, nor the pirate attack of fortress. This could be happening tomorrow. Maybe still can. Since the game was about defending cities, you lost if they were all destroyed, and the missile batteries didn't matter, but... As I've mentioned, at this point people had already come to expect from their arcade cabinets to offer a way to extend play. So, if you earned enough points, I don't know, the people on the ground celebrated, maybe, multiplied for sure, and you got another city. A spare, or a replacement for a destroyed one. Now that was a bit silly. Naturally, as it was the standard industry practice at the time, Missile Command could not be beaten. Extend your play as much as you can, there was only one possible outcome. Total annihilation. When that happened, the game flashed a big explosion on the screen, and the caption. Not the classic game over, but the end. And this is where Toyra and Adam went beyond the craft of game development, and stepped into the realm of the artistic. Before I elaborate on that, we need to figure out what art is. Okay, okay, we won't be doing that. It's a job for actual specialists in art theory who come up with clever definitions and write thick papers that are never read by actual artists, so I don't know why they bother. Let's focus only on what art needs. For a very long time, art used to be... Anything rich people paid for, but did not wear or put inside themselves. However, standards have changed. In today's world, there's one key thing that has to be there in a work before anyone can even try to claim any traces of art in it. And that thing is choice. For a work that embodies art as a choice, like few others can, let's examine a favorite of mine, one of the most influential pieces of the 20th century art, the one that makes classical art types really, really mad, Marcel Duchamp's Fountain. For those of you who don't know what Fountain is, luckily it's very easy to explain. It's a mass-produced urinal Duchamp or his friends bought in a shop, then laid it flat on its back, painted an artist's signature, R. Mut 1917, on it, and attached a label with the work's title, Fountain. Then he had it submitted to the Society of Independent Artists for its upcoming grand exhibition of modern art. The directors of the society were utterly bamboozled by the piss take. Well, except for Duchamp, but they didn't know it was his. In the end, they didn't reject Fountain since the exhibition was open to all, but they didn't exhibit it either. Disappointed, Duchamp quit the society, and then his Dadaist comrades published articles and letters about Fountain and the best-known photo of the piece. Then they lost it. I'm not an artist, so I don't know how you lose a urinal, but that's a story, and the fountains you can see in some museums today are reproductions made decades later. Yes, someone had to order bespoke sculpted replicas of a once mass-produced urinal. Now, the obvious question about the fountain is, what did the artist do? Where is the art? We're not even talking aesthetics, because you're supposed to leave your aesthetics at the door before talking about Dada. Though, 
Some people started saying later that the urinal did look kinda sexy from that angle, but that's entirely their problem. No, just what was the artist's contribution to the piece? I mean, the sculpture was ready-made, and ready-made is how this kind of work would be called when imitators followed in droves. Well, according to Dushan and his crew, the art lies in the act of choosing that particular object out of all the other objects he could have chosen. But he did way more than that. He chose a specific orientation for it, lying flat, topside facing the viewer, and then followed the whole ritual of art. There's a signature on the work. When does an artist put a signature on a piece? When it is finished. Complete. This has a meaning. Also, the artists gave it a title, and that's a pretty big deal, because without a title telling us what we're supposed to see, a lot of art becomes just shapes or images of artists cosplaying girlfriends, boyfriends, homeless guys from the next street over, and rich people paying for the artist's lunch. But with a title, they become historical figures, guards, allegories, and so on. The title is what breathes life into a piece. So, an artist chose a particular mass-produced urinal design, picked a particular way to orient it in space for the display, came up with a title that would immediately cause a reaction, because everyone could plainly see it was not a fountain but a urinal, and decorated it with a signature, which itself was a play on words, by the way. It was a playful piss take, but there is quite a lot to unpack here. For a contrast, let's take a normal modern painting. An artist goes to a shop, chooses and buys some mass-produced paints, canvas or sheets of paper, all manufactured by an industry. Then, the artist smears the paints on a surface, mechanically arranging them in space for a particular effect. It may look like something, it may be abstract, but at the lowest level, everything is spots of paint, not some fairy dust. Then, the artist picks a name to tell the audience what the arrangement of paint is supposed to represent, or defiantly not represent. The artist is done. The artist signs the piece. If you were to go looking for an exact line separating normal art from fountain, you'd find it very difficult to define. And with the fountain starting as a generic object, the line between art and not art is hard to see. Or maybe a matter of choice? Or maybe in the dark future someone would come up with art detectors, and each artist would be observed in their work by two guys sitting in the corner of the workshop, monitoring brainwave activity and room temperature and the like. And when the work is signed, one of them comes up to the artist and says, It's art. And the other guy says, No, no, look at this reading. They may be faking it. We need to run this by the committee. And they do, and ten years later the artist gets the certificate, with a postcard saying, Congratulations, you arted. But until we get that hardware, looking for art in anything should start with looking for the artist's choices. And it's especially true for media relying on technology. Making a black-and-white film, when that's the only kind of film there is, is not a choice. Adding color to a film in 1925 was a choice. Making a black-and-white film now is also a choice. It may be a bad one for a particular film, but it is there to make. By itself, it's not artistic, since you could be simply copying someone else's work or pick the wrong settings for your camera. Ideally, the choice needs to be conscious, it needs to be purposeful, but some may disagree. Also, I'll let you in on a secret. 
Some choices in classical fine arts were also affected by the mundane physical world. Say, an artist could seem to prefer particular colors because those paints were the only ones the merchants in the harbor had. With all that in mind, let's go back to the Missile Command of 1980 and look for artsy choices made by Toyra and Adam. The game's subject matter was not their choice. No, the boss of their boss saw a picture in a magazine and thought that a game about missile defense would be doable and profitable. That's not an issue, though. A lot of classical art was commissioned because some fat cat was bored of an empty corner or a church wanted a new ceiling. That this game about missile defense had to end in the player's defeat was not the developer's choice either. The Golden Age arcades were places where losers gathered, because unless you played something against other people, the only way games of the era ended was with your loss. Much like trying to win the game itself, it is futile to look for art in something that everybody was supposed to do. The player being rewarded with extra cities to extend the game falls into this category as well. Disappointing, but classical art had plenty of canons and traditions too. Missile Command's presentation was heavily influenced by what Atari had at the time. These sounds were produced by the Pokey chip I introduced in episode 2.4, originally developed for Atari microcomputers and then stuffed into many arcade cabinets to save costs. The striking visuals of missile trails cutting across the black sky happened to be a perfect job for the vector graphics system Atari's coin-op department was using starting with Lunar Lander. I look into it more early in Season 3, but during this period many coin-op companies started to realize that standardizing cabinet internals, instead of having custom circuitry in each, was a good thing. So Toyra and Adam were far from free in deciding what Missile Command looked and sounded like. They didn't get to pick the name of the game either. The management did. This leaves us with just two words. The end instead of game over. That was not a common practice. It was not something a boss asked them to do. The end was entirely the developer's choice, and according to Toyra, the idea came to him from his nightmares. Okay, does this choice of words do anything meaningful? Game Over was a message that had been around in the arcades for decades. It had appeared in electromechanical cabinets and on pinball tables. Games of old were tests of skill. You took up a challenge, earned points, then the timer or something else ran out, and the game was over. Here's your score, a measure of your skill. Now pay another nickel or push off and let someone else have a go. The end, however, is not a message to end the test of skill on. It's the words we see at the end of a story, a book, a movie. Applying it to Missile Command, implying that the game you had just witnessed wasn't a test of how long you could resist the enemy assault, but something like an interactive film. Your targeting cursor had just played one of the main parts in an animated short about the madness of mutual assured destruction. And it was assured. Once the missiles started flying, all you could do was delay the inevitable. It was almost like a cartoon, in that no matter who played, the story played out the same way. And as a story, it had a message, a moral. There's no winning this. 
I could say the only winning move is not to play, but the movie the phrase comes from, War Games, was released only in 1983, though it's a product of the same era. And the same 1983, on the other side of the Cold War lines, in the USSR, a seven-minute animated film came out, titled Conflict. It was created by Gary Baden, well, Badenstein, but that was too long and too Jewish for the USSR, evidently. I think you can find Conflict online and watch it. It's relying on a visual language and depicts in stop-motion animation how a small border dispute between matchstick people with green heads and matchstick people with grey heads erupts into escalating violence, matchstick cavalry charges, machine guns, massive formation being thrown into the war, until one side launches a matchbox into the other and the resulting blaze incinerates everyone. It has many striking shots, no pun intended. Watch it if you get the chance. This subject matter was highly topical at the time. In 1980, Missile Command was resonating with people, but I'm not sure whether the end message played a considerable role in it. It's not like everyone was enjoying the action mindlessly, and only when they saw the caption they got this epiphany light bulb above their heads and exclaimed, Oh my god, this is about a nuclear war! No, it's the missiles coming down on the cities that did it. I am going to reason that Missile Command was a finely crafted commercial product of an industry keeping its finger on the pulse of the current trends, with an inspired artistic flourish thrown in by its creators. Not what they'd call an art game, but those would be coming very soon. Dave Toyra dipped into his nightmares again for inspiration immediately after he was done with Missile Command. If you remember, this was also the period when the industry dabbled in remaking things in first person. First person Star Trek, Star Raiders, first person Tank, Battlezone, and first person Pong would be Ballblazer. Toyra jumped on the chance to do a first person Space Invaders. And it just didn't work. The prototypes didn't thrill anyone. The project was on the verge of cancellation when David remembered a movie that had spooked him in his childhood with an image of monsters crawling out of a hole in the ground. So he wrapped the playing field of Space Invaders until the left and the right edges met, turning it into the inside of a cylinder or a well. The player's cannon moved along the rim of the well, and the enemies were coming up the walls from the far side, from the depths. This turned out to be far more exciting, the system functioned even with different shapes of the well, and after more development, Atari released it in 1981 as Tempest, another influential classic from the Golden Age. Working on Tempest, Dave Toyra got to make a choice again, but he didn't redesign the game to highlight a message or an image, it wasn't caused by anything apart from his desire to save his project and make the game good. That's not quite art, that's craft. We've seen quite a few choices of this kind this season, especially games the management didn't ask for. Key Games was supposed to make fake rip-offs of Atari cabinets, but Steve Bristow and Lyle Rains got bored with that and developed Tank. Nobody asked Tomohiro Nishikado for Space Invaders. Nobody asked Rick Mora to port Space Invaders to the VCS until he was already doing it. Doug Neubauer started work on Star Raiders because he wanted the game to exist. And so did Warren Robinette, who insisted on his adventure. And Gunpei Yokoi and Satoru Okada wouldn't take no for an answer developing Game & Watch. They simply wanted to make fun games, something that they themselves would want to play. 
Mind, the management did ask for a number of outstanding games, like Missile Command today, and even more titles that were not remarkable but kept the lights in the offices on. However, developers in the industry during this period, even new people with only one game released, did enjoy a certain level of freedom in starting their own projects and telling the management, your idea sucks, mine's better, here is a prototype to prove it. In the modern game industry, this is rare. Unless a company's corporate culture allows for game ideas to come from below, it just doesn't happen. And some of the major companies have the culture of doing the same thing every year. Clearly, something has gone horribly wrong at some point, and we should be on the lookout for that in the later seasons. As for the people who played all those games, things were improving for them every year. Even though the industry had a tendency to milk every successful concept by releasing waves of ripoffs, some of the clones tried to add twists to the original formula. In addition, the range of game subjects had been increasing through the 70s. The industry started with shootouts in space, then the Odyssey arrived with a variety of overlays depicting stuff, but it turned out that tennis was the most topical. Then popular subjects from electromechanical cabinets got video adaptations. Driving, flying, pinball, horse racing, duck shooting. Tanks rolled all over it. Daring motorcycle stunts were performed on the screen. Cacti were shot. The space race got its share of coverage, and space aliens started to invade. There was a lot of shooting. Then came Frogs and Pac-Man, trying to appeal to women by being non-violent and cute. As for choices within those games, tests of skill used to expect you to take them on on their specific terms, to win a stuffed toy, but as even arcade games grew more sophisticated and got rid of arbitrary timers, players got some wiggle room to develop tactics and plan strategy for attaining the new ultimate goal, dominating the local arcade's high-score tables, or getting a patch from Activision. If you wanted more choices, way more choices, you'd have to buy a microcomputer, where at the very end of the decade you could find some role-playing games letting you pick how to develop your character, and adventure-likes letting you pick how exactly you would like to get stuck and confused this playthrough. Or you might get lucky and run into Robert LaFour's interactive fiction, literally stories you made choices in. And there were other ways to choose your own adventure too. Players love choices. Well, not all the choices, just the fun, meaningful ones. Though sometimes you think that you have one, that you're making one, but in reality you're carefully guided towards the only real option. A prisoner of fabricated circumstances. A pawn of the designer. It's 1980 and you walk into your local microcomputer software store, looking for a new game for your Apple II. You got an Apple II the year before because with Microsoft's Adventure coming out, it started to look like new games would require floppy disk drives, and Apple Disk II was surprisingly cheap. Let's see, what have they got? Oh, another Eduware title. You remember Eduware? You've heard about their Space 1 and 2. Haven't tried them yet, but you have played their Terrorist at your friend's place. Now that was a crazy game, taking hostages, issuing demands. They also had Windfall, the oil crisis game that showed how the oil industry worked and how it suddenly didn't, and Network, a TV broadcaster satire, like that movie a few years earlier. So, what's the new release? 
The Prisoner. Inspired by the TV series. Oh yeah, you remember that one. That's where Patrick McGowan was trying to escape from Wales in the late 60s. Well, a creepy village where everyone was trying to make him spit out some secret, but it was shot in Wales. They're still showing reruns once in a while. And this game is about, let's see, escaping captivity, brainwashing techniques, delusion. You don't have a choice, do you? You gotta try this one. Funny how it was just lying here on the shelf by itself. You bring it home, open the packaging, and pull out the manual, because this is not a simple console game, and you need to know how to run it properly. Then something catches your eye. Publishers' notes. They look like a manifesto. You gotta read them in full. Publishers' notes. Why base a computer game on a television series that appeared as a summer replacement over ten years ago and now only occasionally shows up on a few public broadcasting stations? More than merely a vehicle for entertainment, The Prisoner was both a psychological study and a political statement concerning the problem of keeping one's individuality and personal freedom in a technological society. Its message was that modern society is a vast collective prison, and each one of us is, in fact, a prisoner. When the series was produced, it was a time of widespread social protest, covert government activities, and a brutal repression of individual rights. In order to get around the problems of censorship, the prisoner translated the burning issues of the day into timeless, universal symbols, and treated them as such. With 1984 only a couple of years away, many of these issues are as relevant today as they were then. I am not a number, cries the prisoner, yet with the increasing influence of computer networks, databases, and information peddlers in our lives, we are all in danger of becoming merely numbers within the memory banks of hundreds of machines across the country. More and more information about our personal lives is becoming increasingly accessible to anyone who has a link into the proper database. Thus, it seems appropriate that a show concerned with the theme of loss of individuality and influence over our own lives should inspire a game to be played on a computer. And it is appropriate that such a game should be produced by Eduware. Like the producers of the series, we wish to release products that are not only entertaining, but also provocative, stimulating, and thought-provoking. Unique software for the unique mind is our motto, and we like to think that there are some intelligent individuals extant in the masses who would like to escape from the many mindless carbon copy programs that are out there to software that is unique, individual, and, at least symbolically, has something to say or teach about the global village in which we live. Many individuals and sources contributed to this program. The Prisoner and its documentation was written by David Mullich. Sherwin Stephan wrote the education notes, and both he and Stephen Pedersen contributed many valuable ideas to and were the primary testers of the program. Additional testing was done by John Mullich and Kathy C. End quote. Heavy stuff, but you have to agree, pretty relevant for 1980. You wonder for an instant whether it's going to remain relevant, say, 
40 years later. Then you read the rest of the booklet and boot up the game. The premise is that you've been an agent of some service up until very recently, but you've grown sick of the service's ways and resigned. Then you expressed your feelings, your reasons for resignation, to a machine, and it summarized all of your frustrations as a single three-digit number. All of your individuality has been reduced to a three-digit code, but at least it's your private knowledge. That done, you head to an airport to fly somewhere, anywhere, for a vacation. You pick a destination out of a short list of options, and then everything goes white. Drowsiness. Darkness. Drowsiness. Awake. What a sleep. Wait, where am I? A glance out the window tells you that foul play has been in progress. You have been abducted and imprisoned on the island, an isolated, self-contained community that is a bizarre perversion of society where sophisticated brainwashing techniques, electronic surveillance devices, plots, counterplots, delusions, paradoxes, and oppression abound. End quote. Aha, the prisoner is going to try and make you give up your resignation code. That's how you lose. As for winning, the booklet has this to say. The only way to win the game is to escape. By the way, that may be escape literally, figuratively, physically or mentally from the island. And the way to escape is to... Ah, but that would be telling. There may be none, one or several ways to escape. That is for you to discover and decide. End quote. Wonderful. There is or may be a way to win this, which is already better odds than what you get in Missile Command. Shame you don't know what you need to do, though. The manual does say that you can earn points measuring your individuality, and enough of them will open some doors, but you may also trade them away for clues. And if you fail, your score is your consolation prize. However, the prisoner saves to disk automatically all the time, and losing resets the game state as if you've never played it, and there is no high score table. Alright then, it's time to start exploring. Your first and every day on the island begins in your castle, a black walled off area. That's you, the number sign. You see an opening in the left wall and realize that the game's manual hasn't actually told you how to move. The screen tells you it's U, D, L and R keys. You try to move, and a white wall appears in front of you. The castle is a procedural maze of invisible walls. Don't worry, there is no dragon. There may be no walls either, the entire maze serving only as a metaphor for regaining consciousness after being drugged. When you finally do get to the exit, the game asks, Who are you? and offers you five choices. You can say you are the number sign, an asterisk, an exclamation or a question mark, or 562. Would you like to pick that last one just to see what would happen? No? Well, try the others. Try is the key word. You won't get out until you admit you're a number. Know thyself. Oh, and you get a message that the caretaker wishes to see you. 
Once you get out, you realize that your castle is building number 6. If it's all like the TV show, the caretaker's got to be in number 2. Let's go. What's that? You can't move. Yes, you can, it's just that the game has changed the control layout without telling you. Outdoors, it's N, E, S and W. The manual warned you that sometimes you'd need to try every key, didn't it? There's house number two, and inside there is the caretaker. It's a chatbot. Remember Eliza? Well, this is Eliza's big brother. Cryptic, dismissive, domineering and frustratingly unhelpful. It does let you recreate the intro dialogue between number six and number two from the TV show, though. You say goodbye and head out. Let's check out building one. It's a hospital running an association test. It shows you words or strings of characters, and you're supposed to respond with an input. And again. And again. Oh no, the game has crashed. Syntax error in 562. You know, basic, right? You've typed in so many games. You can fix this. Bring up line 562 and see what the problem is. Just type in list space 562 and hit enter. Why did you stop? You think it's a fake error message? Oh, come on, who does fake error messages? That's ridiculous. No, wouldn't you know it? The game has fixed itself. False alarm. In building three, we you have the town hall. You know what, let's go someplace else and come back when we have a good reason to be here. Building 4 is a hall with a throne, and the floor beeps when you step on some of the tiles. It's probably something they'll explain later. Building 5 is where the carnival is, and you can't get in without a costume. You're definitely coming back here later. Out the door you go, and... What's that? The buildings are all in the wrong places now. Yes, the island has been rearranged. It is a bit inconvenient, since you cannot see building numbers until you walk right up to them, but it is purely aesthetic. It's not being done to drive you mad, is it? Number seven is the bank, in case you need some money. You start on the island with 500 of the local credits, but you haven't even had a chance to spend a single one, so let's keep moving. What's that? The building you were heading to has disappeared? Just walk it off, maybe it'll come back. It has? See, no problem. Number eight is the courtroom, and you are the defendant. The game flashes its own code on the screen as the prosecutor's statement, and then you defend yourself by means of... playing hangman. Fail, and you go back to the castle, a fate worse than death. Every time you go back, you have to do the maze again. Number nine is the theater. You can watch some movies here in glorious text mode graphics. It's like those kaleidoscope programs showing nothing but noise, but subtitled by nursery rhymes. We all know what the island is. All we have to do is pull... What? No, I don't hear anything. We are the Brotherhood. We are dedicated to the overthrow of the island. Are you willing to join us? Good. Are you prepared to give your life, commit murder and acts of sabotage which might cause the deaths of innocent people, cheat, forge, blackmail, distribute habit-forming drugs for the cause of freedom? Here is your first task. Go to the great chair and say, Mary had a little lamb. 
Did you get that? Good luck. The Brotherhood lives. Ah, I see you've discovered the Brotherhood. Yes, their tasks are a fun way to get some points. Lots of points, in fact. The Great Hall is building number four, if you feel like dealing with that right now. Don't expect miracles, though. Number ten is the island's shop. Finally something useful. Although it adjusts the prices for you specifically when you enter, so it might not be so simple. They've got a book, some paper, a map, gold paint, a percolator, a watch, matches... Keep it in mind, could come in handy. I see you've gone and completed your Brotherhood quest. And they congratulated you by saying it was a test to see if you could follow orders. Good for you. And your next test is... Run the island for the shrinks. Oh, for that you won the hospital. Remember that test that crashed? Number 11 is the newsstand, where they offer a choice of one newspaper. The Islander. The front page today reads, The caretaker unfolds his programma international. Hey, you get that reference. Number 12 is the library, where they tell you you can't go in without having something to contribute. What could a library want? Books. You know where to buy some, so you grab a few at the shop and come back. Now they let you in. They invite you to take part in a test, picking between two book titles. And again. And again. Interesting, they probably want to find out what kind of reading you prefer. Was that? You saw a word flash on the screen? What kind of word? The four-letter F word. The thing Nolan Bushner loves. Weird. Well, maybe try typing it in instead of picking one or two. Who knows? Was that? Now you saw the C word. What, like crap? The friendly Australian greeting. Are you sure you're not hallucinating? I didn't see anything. Finally, the test is over. You got points in values, propaganda, and subliminal categories. Unfortunately, they all score on the con side. Your only pros are the number of books, paper, and pens you've submitted so far. You just don't score high enough, so the library burns one of your books. But if you ever come back and take it seriously, they might let you see a special tome. Number 13 is the school, where you have to attend Professor Gauntlet's memorization class. A sequence of numbers flashes on the screen, and you need to repeat it. Remember Simon? Give it a shot. The first sequence is... 1, 2... Good, that was easy. Now try... 0, 3, 5, 6... Excellent. Now do... 2, 7, 8, 4. Oh dear, you've made a mistake there. Probably a typo. Let's try a different one. 9, 2, 6, 5, 6, 2. No, no, it's all wrong. You're doing it wrong. It started so well. Keep at it. All right, that's enough. For enduring it all, you get... A diploma. And remember, ignorance is strength. They might hire you to write a bias in the future. Number 14 houses the cat and mouse bar. Here you can pay for a drink, or win a free drink if you're good enough at Pong running in text mode. You're heading back to the hospital to run the island? How? 
Oh, you'll wait for the fake crash report and type in run island as if it were a program. That's neat. Not gonna work though, but you do get points for creativity. Number 15 is the church. You can make a donation. And then you get to talk to another chatbot, far friendlier. Is there anything you'd like to confess to? In building 16, you find the other shop, the clothing store. Here you can get a top hat, a three-piece suit, a clown suit, a clone suit, and so on. Hey, didn't you need a costume for the carnival? Get a clown suit and you'll fit right in. At the carnival, you are the star of the show, and everyone wants to watch the clown get the balloon. You're on a seesaw, and you need to add weights so that when they drop on the other side, they launch you at the balloon. Or maybe you'll add some more to jump over a wall and read some secret files in the next room over. For that to work, you'll need to drop the largest weight, the one with square brackets around its name. So put in, open square brackets, W, T, close square brackets. The Apple II keyboard doesn't have the square bracket keys. Oh. Have you read your computer manual carefully? Just asking. You can leave through it later. For now, let's go to number 17. <laughs> the prisoner is entering number 17. If you can get their secret out, caretaker, you'll be reassigned somewhere else away from this boring island. You'll escape. They're strapped to that chair, and you can give them an electric shock by pressing V and increase the voltage by pressing I. If the prisoner says something, type their reply in. That beeping, uh, that's their heart rate monitor. Don't worry about that. We'll ask the questions, you just press the buttons and report what the prisoner is saying. Try giving a zap now. No reply? Increase the voltage. Still no. Up it again. They're just moaning. Keep going. Nothing? Still nothing. What if we try higher voltage? We've accounted for that, keep following the procedure. Oh, they're saying something? Some kind of number? Well, type it in then. You won't. You probably think they're lying. Well, we're at the maximum voltage. What are you going to do now? Leave? Was that? You're not the caretaker. What a strange thing for a caretaker to say. Okay, join the prisoners if you wish. Do you have any questions before you go? How do I win the torture minigame? You always had the option to leave, you know. You could have left before you'd even started. Number 18 is the island recreation hall, where you can escape through physical fitness. There's a series of pits for you to cross, and if you do, you're free. But only the first pit has a bridge across it. To deal with the rest, you'll have to rummage round in the darkness surrounding the pits and see if you can find some random items like ropes or wash tubs and make bridges out of those. And if you do, you might get outside into the graphics mode procedural wilderness where you will be chased by the rover. You can run, you can hide, and maybe you can escape the rover, get on a train from the island to your old office, where they'll ask you why you resigned.
At number 19, you find the Gemini Diner. It's got green, red, and blue stuff. Want some? No? Oh, well, let's leave... What's that? The diner is a cloning machine in disguise? And the owner is offering to make your clone so that you can leave it behind as a decoy and escape? And you only need 10,000 credits? That's a lot of money, but I suppose you could ask for a loan at the bank. To grant you a loan, the bank needs some proof of wealth. A gold watch, a tie, a cross, and a percolator. Gold watch, huh? Wasn't the shop selling regular watches and gold paint? So, let's go buy both. The shopkeeper asks, Shall I paint your watch? Oh dear, this is not going to work. You need a real gold watch. And word at the newsstand is that you can get one at the town hall. At the town hall, you get to be the caretaker and manage the resources of the whole island in a simulation. If you run the place well, you'll get the gold watch. You can adjust how much is going into power, food, water, surveillance, security, gates, internal and external communications. At the moment, they're all operating at 100%, but if you think you can do better, be my guest. You're reducing surveillance? Want to give people some breathing room? How adorable. Notice that some of the numbers are starting to flash. That's because you no longer know what is going on with those values at all times. In something like the Sumerian game, you're always aware how many people and how much grain you have because of surveillance. How can you make rational decisions without keeping an eye on everyone? You're withdrawing power from the gates? The people start escaping. You can't be considered a good manager if your population is dropping. You only had a thousand people to begin with. Reducing security? Now the islanders are getting killed in street fights. Oh yeah, cut the power. That makes the whole place degrade. But someone sends out a call for help, and our masters send in engineers to undo some of the damage. What? You're going to cut external communications now? What is wrong with you? You've lost 500 people. You're fired. I bet you really wanted gold watch. Okay, give it another shot. Don't touch anything. Well, fiddle with some parameter like surveillance to make it look like you're working, but as you can clearly see, the island is perfect. You cannot improve it in any way. See, you're doing so well they're sending in new people. Great job, caretaker. Here is your deserved gold watch. The cross you can get from the church, the clothing is for sale at the shop, the bank can't deny you the loan now. Let's go to the Gemini Diner and buy the clone. It works. But you've been busted. A guard comes in and gives you three tries to prove your identity, or you'll be killed as a spy. What will you say? The clone has already yelled out, I am the real one. Will you repeat that? Will you come up with a clever ruse? Will you ask questions? Your tries are up, and they send you back to the castle. What's the correct answer? Oh, there isn't any. Oh, come on, you play unwinnable arcade games all the time. What's so special about a puzzle without a solution? You get some points for the attempt, that should be enough. That's what the arcades are all about. Number 20 is the casino. It's got three slot machines. One asks for a silver dollar to play. 
One asks for five credits. One asks for a piece of yourself. You do not have a silver dollar. The credits machine takes your money and generates a saying like "war is peace" and "freedom is slavery," but with random first and second parts. If you get one of the phrases from 1984, you win a cryptic clue. The piece of yourself machine. Oh, you're going to love that one. It doesn't cost you anything apart from a point of your score. It generates a random three-digit number when you use it. There's a secret number. I don't know what it is. Let's call it your lucky number. And if a digit of the number generated by the slot machine matches a digit of your lucky number, you win money. If two digits match, you win an item, either something from the shop or something that takes a little more effort to obtain, like a diploma or a gold watch. If all three digits match, I have no idea what's going to happen, but the number is going to appear on the screen as the result of your input, so you'll probably win something amazing. You're leaving? Oh well. Hold on. Why is it dark now? Someone's whispering in your ear. Are you interested in escaping? You can escape through slot number one. I can sell you a silver dollar. Get a hold of five thousand credits, and I will get in touch with you. The Brotherhood lives. Well, you know how to get the money by now. Get a loan, buy the silver dollar, play the machine. Congratulations, you've bought your way out. See, the screen says, "Freedom is slavery. A man's home is his castle." And back to the castle you go. Did you really think it was going to be this easy? I bet you really want out by now. Here's how you do it: keep running Brotherhood's errands to prove your independence. Keep trying to escape. The more points you have, the more frequently strange things happen around you. The better clues you get. The island is no man. The truth will set you free. Unplug the system. And one of the clues tells you to look up a specific page of the AppleSoft Basic Manual for a hint, and then it dawns on you what it all means, what the truth is, and you go to the caretaker's building and proclaim to it that the island is just a computer game. No complaints about breaking the fourth wall. Sorry, but the fourth wall in the prisoner has an eight-lane highway running through it. You see it now, that thing that has appeared near the caretaker. It wouldn't have had your score been too low. It's so high now, you even get the instructions on how to deal with it. Follow them. Congratulations! You have unplugged the island. The bars on the screen lift. Freedom. Now it asks you to enter your resignation code to compute your final score. Sounds good. You do want the final score, right? Now that you won. Don't leave the input field blank. Try again. No? You think it's a last-ditch fake-out and the game is still on? Well, aren't you clever? Fine, have your true victory. What's it say? The truth has set you free. You have escaped from your apple and now are in command. For have you not always been in control, master? To win is to lose. End quote. You know, we could have just turned it off at any moment, and you would have been free of the prisoner. Why spend all these hours, days, that score on the screen, meaningless? 
Your progress has already been erased from the disk as if you'd lost. Nobody's ever going to see it. At least you've solved some of the mysteries, so you can escape the island mentally, as the manual puts it. Was that you're trying to type something in? You think you're back to the operating system? How cute. No, you are still a prisoner, and no matter what keys you press, you will type in Be Seeing You, the line from the TV show. And now you cannot type anything in anymore. You're locked out. The game has told you to unplug the system, hasn't it? That is still, and has always been, the only way out. So this has been my shoddy production of the experience of playing The Prisoner. It is a real game conceived and programmed by David Mullich and published by Eduware in 1980. They both did and didn't have the permission to base it on the Prisoner TV series, but the company owning the rights was busy imploding and didn't have the time to deal with this. After David got the go-ahead, he started working and let his ideas flow onto the screen. He wanted to do more than just a game inspired by the TV show. He wanted to cram into it the things he had just learned in his college psychology course. Those tricks, distractions, random interruptions, tasks making the player think outside the box were sourced from psychological experiments. And perhaps more game designers should be aware of those simply to keep players on their toes. And Building 17, with its torture room, was a loose recreation of the Milgram experiments on obedience. Stanley Milgram conducted his series of experiments in 1961, trying to answer the question of why rank-and-file Nazis had done Nazi things. He approached it very directly by hiring unaware test subjects through ads as lab assistants, and making them assist him in an educational experiment, another popular topic at the time. The fake test subject was an actor pretending to be very bad at learning, and the assistant had to zap the bad learner with increasingly powerful electric shocks as punishment for failure to answer questions. Of course, no actual shocking took place, but the actor was out of sight in a separate room, producing convincing screams, pleas for help and thrashing noises. The idea was to see how far people would go in the procedure, and whether their obedience depended on specific phrases, gestures, or even clothing worn by Milgram. Much has been written about these experiments, as they weren't exactly ethical, and their results, as they were suspicious and surprising. But what I find the most fascinating is the narrow focus on the very act of doing something bad after someone asks you to. Ignoring all the context. And by context, I mean that a number of observers, mainly of African descent, noted in the 30s and the 40s that the Nazis were doing the things the British, the French, the Belgians, the Portuguese, the Germans, the Italians, and the Dutch had already done to the peoples of Africa. There was even a minor split in the left movement over whether to say there was a difference between the Axis and the Allies at all. Some people couldn't find any. Then they noticed that only one of the two was not rounding up all the leftists. In Europe, in the colonies it still landed you in jail without a trial. So when the Germans had the goal to do genocide in Central Europe, it was at the time when the notion of inferior peoples was taken for granted by most of their neighbors too. And yet Stanley Milgram pondered the singular question of whether a guy would shock another guy hard enough if you asked him strongly enough. Whatever. 
The key detail of this derail to us is that he published his book about it, Obedience to Authority, an Experimental View, in 1974, so it was still pretty new and exciting when Mullich took his psychology class. Out of this experiment, David took the premise and the sudden reversal, addressing the player as the caretaker and not the prisoner, and it even told you that if you quit, the master would not be pleased, which, if you still remember you're not the caretaker, should be the clue to quit immediately. But look, here's the voltage button, here's the shock button, the prisoner is actually in that chair, come stay a while. It wasn't just psychology, but many of the 70s games that left a mark on the prisoner. I couldn't make up a better summary of the decade in a single title if I tried. It's got a clone of Pong integrated as a bar game, sadly not at Andy Caps. There's Simon too. It's got a computer casino where you bet a piece of yourself to win big or lose it all. It has a reference to Programmer International. It's got the trendy natural language interface with chatty opponents waiting for you in several buildings. It has a resource management game, even though it encourages you not to manage anything. It's got inventory puzzles, using items to solve problems, just like an adventure, but it also riffs of adventure-like scoring system. When you quit the prisoner temporarily, it tells you your score is this many points out of that many points, the second number obviously being higher. Normally, it means you're missing something. Except the out of this many points part in the prisoner is randomized and they're just to mess with you. The game uses two different control schemes for indoors and for outdoors, offering just a glimpse of the mess that early computer and video game controls were. Arrow keys were not there yet on most keyboards. And one of the places you'd be navigating with those controls was the castle, a procedural maze of invisible walls inspired either by Dragon Maze, supplied with every Apple II, or by one of the many games that followed it. And naturally, since The Prisoner was published by Eduware, ostensibly an edutainment company, the game had the trappings of an educational title, mostly by parodying and perverting teaching machines. Though there are a couple of pages in the manual explaining how it could be used in real education. And the subliminal messages test was most likely borrowing from an earlier Eduware title, called Subliminal. At the same time, The Prisoner did many things that the world of computer games was still to explore properly. Uncensored cussing in the subliminal messages, for one. It could be the first commercial computer game to feature that, unless Subliminal had had it as well. Resource management had been done, but lording over a settlement, adjusting its food, water and police supply was a bit different, and the notion that perfect awareness comes only from perfect surveillance, the attempt to model the perspective of the ruler of a country, will be developed deeper later in the 80s. The outdoors escape sequence with the rover, where you could hide from it, is yet another herald of games about sneaking. A disorienting change of perspective or some other trick to make the player forget which character they are actually playing as is another not-to-overuse twist you can find in games made many years after The Prisoner. And the same goes for fake crash reports. And we're going to see more games made up of many smaller games too. And of course, games where the best course of action is not to engage but walk away, like in Building 17. That's going to happen too. A pretty famous example, released a decade ago now, would be Spec Ops The Line, which tasks players with rescuing some people in Dubai ravaged by sandstorms. 
Except it's a shooter kind of game, so the primary way for the player to interact with the world is by shooting people. So it escalates all the way to atrocities you take direct part in, and here the developers were drawing inspiration from The Heart of Darkness, a book about colonialism and its crimes. Yet, at the end of every chapter of the game's story, somebody asks the main character if he wants to keep going, and if the player doesn't quit, well, here is the next chapter, where everything gets even worse. And then the game starts breaking the fourth wall by telling the players as the new level loads that it's all their fault. The Prisoner is a visionary game in many regards, and on the technical level it was advanced for its time too. It had to come on a disc, because it both needed to save every time you did something, and took up a lot of memory. Every building, the island map, the introduction, the loss and victory sequences were individual programs written in BASIC and stitched together with machine code, since BASIC didn't let you do something so complex natively. With The Prisoner and Odyssey the complete app venture, we are literally watching developers outgrow BASIC in slow motion. What wasn't happening in slow motion was the development of the prisoner. According to Mullich, he created the whole game in about six weeks. Like the other Dave in this episode, Toira, once Mullich got going, there was no stopping him. Except, unlike Missile Command, the prisoner from the very beginning was its developer's own idea, and Edgware left him with a lot of creative control. So when it comes to the author's choices, the prisoner has them coming out of its ears. But is it art? It's a tough question. The game is interesting in that it explores the capabilities of the medium down to the hardware it is played on, the lack of square bracket keys on the keyboard. And they do say in the manual that making a computer game about resisting computers ruling over us was the point. So it's very postmodern in this the medium is the message, as Marshall McLuhan put it in 64. On the aesthetics front, the prisoner is not pretty, nearly everything is blocky, drawn in the 40-column text mode, but you do get glimpses of the graphics mode in a couple of places. Very fitting places. One is the screen at the movie theater, where a static picture I think shows the number sign being chased by the rover. The other graphics mode area is the wilderness, where you meet the actual rover. It's a striking contrast to the rest of the game. Instead of rectangular blocks, you suddenly see trees and bushes, and it just might distract you enough to make you think you did escape. Maybe the blocky graphics do have a higher purpose for this one sequence. Or maybe this was the best Mullich could do in six weeks. As for the sound, its best application is found in Building 17, where the beeps of the heart rate monitor paint an image that neither the texts nor the graphics modes could create on the screen. A tortured man. Given the limited audiovisual capabilities of the computer, the evocative use of beeps here is pretty clever. Unfortunately, the prisoner uses beeps everywhere else too, and doesn't even try more advanced sound effects or speech. So, the hit-and-miss balance here is on the miss side. And this kinda applies to the game as a whole. I mean, as a piss-take, a troll game, the prisoner is perfect, but it would benefit from being more focused, in my opinion. Maybe it didn't need 20 buildings, maybe 15 or 10 could have worked just as well, or even better, not spread so thin. Some parts of the prisoner come off as different just for the sake of being contrarian. 
David Mullich created them to surprise the players, make traditional elements of games work differently, subvert your expectations, but after a few buildings you are starting to expect him to do exactly that. Also, I can't help noticing the irony in spending the entire game to prove you're not a number, only for a number, your score, to determine whether you're rebellious enough to qualify for the ending. But this most likely is an intended joke. Maybe it's very personal, and scenes that work well for some people don't work for others, but the misses make me think that the hits were more lucky than well-aimed. It's kind of like a shotgun approach to game design. Let's make lots of scenes, maybe something will land on the target. And this is where the art argument runs into a big iceberg, because traditionally, art implies mastery and intent. Missile Command had that in spades. They set out to make a game about missiles raining from the sky, and they did, discarding anything that would distract the player from this essential image. The Prisoner is still a fascinating and bold exploration of the capabilities and limits of the medium of computer game, a series of experimental sketches, but to turn it into art, Malich and Eduware would have to release a follow-up with the game's concept refined, its strong points amplified, something to make you go, now they really know what they're doing. Sadly, Eduware published The Prisoner 2 instead. The original game was the company's biggest hit, it sold thousands of copies. Not tens of thousands, but this is the scale you'd work with outside of the video game industry. It did provide enough funds to release and improve a number of proper educational titles. However, a couple of years later, The Prisoner looked obsolete, not to mention that the latest Apple II model had an expanded keyboard with square bracket keys, and that's one of the game's trickier challenges thrown right out the window. So, The Prisoner 2 was to be merely an enhanced remake of the original. This time, they had even less of a permission to release a game based on a TV show, if that's even possible, but they got lucky again. There's an article about the game on the Digital Antiquarian, by the way, if you want to see the pictures. You might want to see the pictures, because to remain relevant, The Prisoner 2 had to have high-resolution mode color graphics. Luckily, David Mullich had just programmed a new graphical engine for Empire One, The World Builders, the remake of Space, Eduware released in 81, because it had got sued for ripping off Traveller and had to take the original Space off the market. Oops. With the graphics engine working faster than Basic's own color output, the game could offer a first-person view, like in Silas Warner's Escape, decorated interiors, and characters to talk to. Mullich drew the art for the game, but he did not program it, as a division of labor was happening in computer game development. David wrote an extensive design document detailing what each keyword must do in conversations, what progression flags were set by what action, the win and loss conditions for every challenge, and it's been preserved online if you want to see what that looks like, at the Gallery of Undiscovered Entities website. It's actually one of the oldest preserved computer game design documents I'm aware of. The document was handed to a programmer, who turned it into a mesh of basic programs. Again. Released in 1982, the resulting product was prettier and smoother than the original game, but retreaded a lot of familiar ground. Some rooms got a new ending, a few were swapped out completely for different ones. The new gimmick was forcing the disk drives to make scary noises as an additional sound effect to add to the cloning procedure, or make the player think their game disk was about to be reformatted. 
Also, The Prisoner 2 got a whole bunch of parodies of other contemporary graphical adventure games from Online Systems and Adventure International. I suppose some people liked it. The Prisoner 2 also sold a few thousand copies. It wasn't enough, though, and Edgyware itself would be sold in 83 and cease to exist soon after. But we will run into a few other games released by Edgyware in the next season, and David Mullich will be looming in the background as a producer and director for a number of titles. In 1995, he'll even have another stab at interactive torture, seeing as he's listed as both a designer and producer of I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. Personally, I am going to shut up for the year soon. I hope this season has been enlightening. At a glance, the 70s may appear a pretty boring decade for video games. There was Pong, then Tank and Breakout, then people went crazy over Space Invaders, and around the same time console games stopped being just more Pong, and that's when it all began for real. The major industry change during this period was a transition from setting an arbitrary time limit on play sessions to letting people play until they lost through a lack of skill or because the game was rigged. But you and I know that this is just the surface, and if you dig deeper, you find layers far richer in content. Early in the decade, Mike Mayfield created his Star Trek, soon taking its place alongside Hammurabi in 101 Basic Computer Games. As that was rolling off the presses, the old game of Lunar Lander was transformed into Moon Lander with vector graphics, touchscreen controls, and a McDonald's Easter egg just off-screen. In the meantime, Mech picked up Oregon and Lemonade Stand for its bundles of educational software. This was the decade of the peak Plato activity, when students were exploring what they could get away with on an educational network. It turned out that they could get away with multiplayer shooter games, simulators of aerial combat, tank combat, and space trading and combat. They got away with role-playing games and massive worlds with dozens of players exploring, grinding, and farming for loot to sell for cash. What they couldn't get away with was swearing, and so profanity filters were introduced to prevent embarrassment before investors. But the admins couldn't root out porn games. While the video arcades were still milking bouncy balls for all possible profits, on the serious ARPANET network, people were playing, improving, and hacking Maze War, where eyeballs peeked around corners, armed with... eye lasers? I don't know. And then an unfinished game called Adventure appeared on the network, the dead joke of the decade, that only in a few years inspired Zork, Adventureland, Mystery House, Adventure for the Atari VCS, and the first MUD, the other kind of multiplayer role-playing game. Still, early on most of it was happening at universities and research labs, away from the public eyes and public access. This is where activists trying to raise computer awareness before micros became available played a part by unleashing the Wampus. Then, as the microcomputer revolution swept the land, upending the balance of power between major IT companies, it established the micros as the game platform for which small, literally mum and dad outfits, could make and sell games and see profits. In the few years since the introduction of mass market computers, you would already find interesting ideas in the mountains of tapes and floppies released for them. Sure, most of it was remakes and adaptations of arcade and mainframe games, but something was being introduced from the tabletop world too, like space, and it all started mixing together, and you'd end up with something like Starfleet Orion, turning Star Trek into a war game. 
And of course, there was Dragon Maze, not even a commercial title, but so widespread in print, it influenced many designs, up to and including board games. In the field of tabletop games, the decade had plenty to offer too. War games went completely mad with fantasy and sci-fi themes. We got sports games, outdoor survival, the creature that ate Sheboygan, John Carter, all kinds of space empires. In a decade, miniature wargaming went from the con where Leonard Pat presented his dragon and fireballs to the con where Atutoshi Okada presented a Gundam wargame with customizable robots. Francis Tresham designed games about railroads and ancient civilizations. Cosmic Encounter introduced rules for breaking the rules. Tabletop role-playing games were not just Dungeons and Dragons by 1980. RuneQuest and Traveler offered their own takes on what it meant for a hero to develop and grow. And there was more, but I've got to leave something for the next season. This is also the decade when portable and even handheld electronic games appeared, owing their emergence almost entirely to calculators. There was just something about those gadgets with a screen and buttons that made many different people look at them and go, maybe this can be a game too? And it took only a few years to advance from simple red LED toys to the liquid crystal display of the microvision. There was also the peculiar legal lay of the land, by the rules of which games shipping on cartridges had dubious value as intellectual property. It served as the perfect excuse to underpay the people responsible for their creation, but now they're mad and Activision is rising from the basement of the consumer electronics show. It's going to change everything. And today we have observed that in addition to realizing the value of their work, game developers came to see in it opportunities for social commentary and other forms of self-expression. Board game creators had done it decades earlier, but it's nice to see programmers catching up. Also, by the end of the decade, the industry finally noticed that women exist as an audience and tried to cater to them specifically with games about frogs and eating cookies, designed by men. However, women did get into game development too. Joyce Weisbecker, Carol Shaw, Carla Meninsky, Roberta Williams, Kathleen Spracklin, and let's not forget Alexis Adams, turning Adventure International into a company the rest of microcomputer game publishers were looking up to. But these are all white people, right? Well, Jerry Lawson and Ed Smith made it into the industry even without the privilege, overcoming numerous obstacles that the white dudes smiling on most computer legends of the 70s photos simply did not run into. Naturally, game companies over in Japan got involved too and noticed that the tastes of the American and Japanese audiences were different, so games had to be adapted for them. This results in the beginning of a very important process, a ping-pong of sorts of ideas across the Pacific. An American developer introduces a game mechanism, a Japanese one puts an unexpected twist on it and sends it back to America, where someone else adds another twist, and it just keeps going. That's how you go Breakout to Space Invaders to Tempest. Twists were applied to ideas within the countries too, often successfully, but trading shots across the ocean added much-needed diversity, and both sides owe to this exchange a lot. Yet while the 70s were pretty wild, the 80s are going to be wilder still, since every type of game established so far is going to split into several subtypes, each doing something better than the others, and then they're going to mix and blend so much that by the time the 90s roll in, most of the things supposedly invented in the 90s will have been done at least once. However, I've got some bad-ish news. 
That is, that my original plan for Season 3 was that there would be shorter episodes coming out more frequently, and instead 2022 turned out to be a pretty terrible year for any kind of creative work in certain countries, so I'm going to stick to the monthly schedule, but the early episodes in the season will be short. At least shorter than usual. But I may come up with a short episode for this December, because... I've learned about a few things I didn't know about when I was writing early episodes, and I feel they deserve a mention just so that we can all together marvel at the ingenuity of people trying to get themselves entertained in the centuries past. It's not something I've written months in advance, I'm still working on it, so it might turn out bad and I never upload it. So let's call this the end of the season. This has been Season 2 of Computer Game Evolution. Thank you for listening, thanks to LegoFan94 for keeping us hosted, and donate to good causes. The End Be seeing you.